everyone. Welcome to the Charvak Podcast. This is your host Kushal Mehra. All right. So today's podcast is about gun control or violence related to guns in America. And to chat with me back on the podcast is Dr. Wilfred Riley. Dr. Riley is an assistant professor of uh, political science, Kentucky State University. He's an author of two books, uh, Taboo and Hate Crime Hoax. And he also writes for multiple platforms, Commentary, Quillette, Spiked Online. You can go and check them. Dr. Riley, welcome back to the podcast. Great to be here. All right. So, Dr. Riley, the, the reason we're doing this podcast is that recently we had that unfortunate uh, incident of a mass shooting uh, in a school, if I, I'm mentioning it correctly, in Juwaldi, Texas. And obviously it made the news around the world and and the news also came to India. Now, even in our little cocoon that is in India and we have our own political issues and our own political problems, there was a lot of discussion about guns and gun culture in America. And uh, it is, but, so I'll tell you how Indians perceive this subject. Most Indians who live in India barely have any, I would say, conservative, or right of center analysis that is being given to them. Maybe now some of them might, you know, watch Ben Shapiro here and there. Or, but the overall narrative on guns that is consumed in India is pretty much left of center to the far left of America. Also, you know, India does not have the kind of gun laws that America has, as in loose gun laws, where the availability of guns is just there in India. You need to go through multiple processes to get a gun, which is, and it's very hard to get a gun in India. So, and it leads to interesting debates where you, I don't know how to say it, but you get WhatsApp forwards like, you need a prescription to buy medicines in America, but you can just get a gun like that. And why am I doing this? Is because there is this characterization. And in this process, when a tragedy like this happened, I was like, what am I supposed to do? Then let's do this. Let's try to have a very open debate. I tried to read as much as I can to understand, which is why I shared uh, those couple of studies. And uh, and you recently wrote about it too. Uh, uh, I think it was for Newsweek where you wrote this essay called We're Not an Outlier. Targeted solutions will make America safer than gun control. And then I ended up reading a couple of studies. Uh, one, one study was published in rand.org, mm -hmm. uh, which was the science of gun policy. And the other was basically I'm a subscriber to Michael Chomer's Substack. And Michael Chomer gave this presentation on guns and tyranny. So maybe we can start with this. What are the gun laws in America? Well, the gun laws in America, I, I think that the perception this. So I'll open with a very brief story. Um, when I tell people in Kentucky that I have lived on the south side of Chicago or the east side of nearby Aurora, I often get the perception that they imagine sort of black and Italian men driving by in luxury sedans and shooting up the scenery with rifles. And the flip side of that is that when I go home to Chicago, um, I think when I say that I live in Appalachia, it's the same thing. People imagine, you know, sort of guys saying things like, you've got a pretty mouth sitting on the porch playing the gut fiddle with three rifles behind them. So the Americans tend to stereotype one another across black, white lines, et cetera, is fairly violent. And certainly the global impression is that we are a violent nation. 
Uh, I was traveling in Costa Rica once with American Field Service, and I told someone I was from Chicago. This was a Costa Rican girl I was talking to, and she said, oh, Chicago, Al Capone, boom, boom. That's an absolutely true story. So there is, there is this take. Uh, you could probably add Larry Hoover to that these days, so on. But in reality, America's gun laws are not shockingly different uh, when I've read through them from, say, Switzerland. Um, you can buy a gun in Israel, uh, in America, another country, Israel has fairly lax gun laws in many cases, but you can certainly buy a gun in America. The process, though, is not walking into the gun store and saying, give me two of them. Uh, to buy a gun in America, I, I've purchased firearms. And what you do is go into the store, you fill out a four page application that states that you've never been convicted of a felony, you've never been adjudicated mentally ill, so on down the line. Uh, these days, in the large majority of states, if not all, that's actually checked against a state police and an FBI database. Um, you pay for the gun, you know, at the time this is going on. And assuming the process is cleared, um, there, there's either going to be a wait time of a couple of days or at the end of that transaction, which takes perhaps an hour or two, you can then take the firearm that's usually, you know, placed in a secure case and you take that out to your car and then you own a gun. I mean, so those are those are the American gun laws. You can purchase firearms. There actually are substantial limitations on who can buy them. Other states add uh, limits to this. So in Illinois, for example, you need a FOID card, a firearm owner's identification card to be in possession of any firearm. And as I recall, to buy a firearm, uh, things like that are typical at the state level. We're a very federal country. Um, so in New York, for example, there was a bill just passed by Governor Hochul uh, stating that you have to be 21 to buy what are called assault-style rifles, rapid-firing, two-hand-held um, rifles. So th the laws vary, but the basic outline I've described is pretty similar uh, across the country. One other caveat, by the way, is that a machine gun, or what would actually be called a, a full-on assault rifle, a weapon of war, that is illegal in the USA, as it is in almost all countries, as I understand. Um, for those that don't understand guns, a semi-automatic weapon is just a gun, uh, a modern firearm. That means a gun, yes, when you pull the trigger, the gun fires once. You then have to pull the trigger again for the gun to fire again. Uh, I suppose there are alternatives. A revolver also fires once when you pull the trigger, but has a slightly more complex setup with a barrel that extends out of the gun into which you place bullets. And I guess you could you could talk about a bolt action rifle or something where every time you shoot, you cock the full mechanism again and put a bullet back in. But a semi-automatic is just a gun. An automatic is a weapon that when you hold down the trigger, empties the magazine of the rifle. You are, you're firing every round in that mag, whether that's 11, 30, 57, whatever the case might be. So automatics are illegal in the USA. You can buy guns fairly easily, uh, but there are limits. You can't be a felon. You can't be insane, so on down the line. Um, I'll, I think I'll add a note here. One of our big problems, as with uh, voter fraud allegations and so on, is just enforcement of these mechanisms. Immigration is another thing. People have an impression that the violators of the immigration laws in the USA are mostly sort of hardworking Mexican farmers walking across the border. That's not the case if you ever worked in business. I mean, if you have a visa in the USA, you're you're checked almost to an annoying degree as you enter, and then not not really again. I mean, you can you're obviously supposed to re up that at regular periods, but if you don't, not much is done to you except that you probably won't advance in business. I mean, there are many people who were students here who just sort of stayed. Um, so the the same sort of issue with gun laws. I mean the recent mass shooters were all visibly crazy. I mean, there's a popular social media video of one of them holding up a bag of cats, as in live animals that he'd apparently shot or killed with a hatchet. 
And this apparently was not added to the state's red flag notification system in time or something. I mean, there obviously mistakes were made. And this this guy was able to purchase two assault style firearms and kill a bunch of people. But I mean, so we, we have fairly stable gun laws. Enforcement of them is problematic. And the number of guns, I'm sure, does to some extent correlate with crime because of theft, so on down the line. But the laws themselves are not shockingly unconventional. Yep. Another thing that I hear all the time uh, in American discourse, so I'll give you an example. Whenever I listen to a left-wing American podcast, they keep on talking about this one particular gun, so AR-15, if -hmm. I remember. And especially, uh, I've noticed uh, the American community, the the community I belong to, Indians from India, they are not very pro-gun, at least from whatever little polls I have understood. And they keep on giving me this answer. Oh, but why do they allow AR-15s? Now, is there a fundamental difference between, let's say, as far as the firing mechanism is concerned, between a handgun and an AR-15, or everything is just single click every time you have to press one, one once for one bullet to come out? The AR-15, I mean, a a way to think of it would be as the Ford Taurus of rifles, if you're a car guy. I mean, it's a good, moderately priced platform, almost. I mean, I would say the majority of cop cars and things like that, paramedic response sedans are going to be Ford Tauruses or the Japanese competitor. It's an okay to good car that's in that price range, that's popular in that field among enthusiasts. The AR platform is the same thing. I mean, an AR-15 rifle, simply an Armalite rifle, it's the NATO basic caliber. I think at root, it shoots two, in fact, I know it shoots two, two, three. It's something a lot of people have trained on as soldiers, police officers, hunters, things like that. So most gun stores tend to have them available. Um, no, there, there's no difference between an Armalite and any other semi-automatic repeating rifle, basically. Again, with any gun, um, I have a third-gen Glock 17, for example, which is just a gun. It's a standard handgun. Um, I'm reasonably deadly for a you know fat guy moving into the 40s. You know, I mean, many Americans do train to fight with very high rates of martial arts uh, training, very high rates of you know gun instructor level training, concealed carry, that kind of thing. Which is weird because we're all out of shape. So it's a nation of dangerous fat people. I mean, it's it's interesting. I mean, good warriors we could could hit the gym a little bit. We haven't we haven't been tested in the homeland in a while. But at any rate, I mean, like the third gen Glock 17. I mean, that takes a, an it's 17 round magazine, and it's a semi automatic weapon. Um, when I shoot my buddy, uh, his name's Daryl Pento. When I shoot his AR, that the standard you use is uh, I think it's a 23 round NATO magazine. It's a semi automatic. So there's no real difference in the rate of fire between someone coming into a room. If, for example, you're trying to clear a group of burglars from a space with a third-gen Glock and opening fire and someone coming in with the Armalite rifle and opening fire, the difference would be that you would have 17 rounds as opposed to 20-plus rounds. And, I mean, the way to get around that would just be to stick a magazine in your pocket. I mean, you can rack that into the gun then pull the slide back in about two seconds. So, again, you can talk about whether these weapons in general are too dangerous or something like that, and I, I certainly don't think so. I mean... You can make a Molotov cocktail. It can destroy the front of a building as every student rioter in every country knows from a Coke bottle. So, um, but if you, that at least is an argument that I'd be willing to have. If you're having that argument though, there's no real argument that an Armalite platform rifle is more dangerous than a nine millimeter or two magazines or than any other rifle. I, th- I think one of the things about the Gla- the Armalite, the, AK- the AR-15 is that it looks kind of threatening. It's modeled on a military gun, although it's much less effective. 
Uh, it's got the magazine ratcheted into the bottom. So you have that kind of, you know, Schwarzenegger versus Predator feel. It's all black. It's got stuff like the fire vents and the barrel that the average shooter doesn't really need. But I mean, if I have a seven round magazine deer rifle, which I actually do, I'm a good but not extraordinary shot. And if I do decide to go hunt, um, it may be having fun for the day with your buddies. But if, if a you know stag runs by you, you don't want to shoot it and break its leg and leave it in agony. So you're generally going to have multiple rounds if you're a hunter. That gun could fire all seven of those in the same time frame that I could fire using an AR-15. So the, the AR-15, to some extent, because it looks like the movie gun, maybe is the play actor's favorite. But in fact, it's no different from a lot of other guns. It's just a good, effective gun, the Taurus of guns. And isn't it a fact that most of the gun-related crimes that are committed in the United States of America, and please correct me if I'm wrong, are by just regular handguns, but everybody seems to be obsessed with the AR-15? This is a critical point, actually. I, I didn't know that we were going to get into this because this touches on race and class and a lot of other things. Crime in the USA. So in Britain right now, there's a phrase, knife crime. I'm not going to exaggerate GB's crime rate, which in terms of murder is perhaps a third of ours. But I mean, there are many British cities like London that have crime rates on par with the vast majority of the United States, large, high crime rates among Caucasians, people of African descent, pretty much pretty much everybody, Asians in some cases, which is unique globally. But I mean, like when, when you look at this and you say, well, how are they, how are these this rate of murder possible? That's on par with places I've lived. You'll see that people are literally attacking one another with, you know, machetes and falchons, like long knives. There are knife collection boxes in the city. I don't say this to say knives are exactly as dangerous as guns, but when you look at urban violence, yes, we don't find that the, the typical killer in the USA, to put it very mildly, is a middle-class chubby taxpayer with the standard Armalite rifle. I mean, the majority of crime in the USA, just like the majority of crime in most countries, is committed by young, poor men. Uh, in the USA, more than half of it, if you get into murder, is committed by minority men. And it's committed just with sort of weapons of the everyday. I mean, revolver-type handguns, knives. I mean, there are more than 400 people every year killed with a category of weapons that includes bats. I mean, those are no longer cool, uh, as stupid as that word sounds, but I mean, they're, they're used commonly in urban brawls and so on. So, I mean, the majority of our murder deaths are, do involve guns, but they don't involve assault rifles, quote unquote. Uh, the last I looked, that one year there were 254 rifle deaths, the next year there were 415 rifle deaths. So a rifle of the AR-15 variety is an expensive piece of merchandise. I mean, it costs, the cheapest I've seen a good one for is $789 recently. I'm sure as we both get better known, local gun store owners or something might contact me with better deals. But I mean, it's it, that's not something that a kid who's involved in the street gang scene is going to have. So the, again, the majority of crime involves people using regular handguns or even hand weapons. Um, and a lot of it, one thing that has to be understood here, crime overall in the USA is still dominated by whites. If you look at anything from corporate crime to child abuse and child pornography to even on the street, I mean, methamphetamines, opiates, this enormous problem we have in Kentucky. These are real serious criminals, bikers and such. But when you specifically get into the gang scene and gang murder, um, that's very, very heavily dominated by African-Americans and recently arrived minority immigrants. Um, you know, it's, it's a sector I would rather we were less prevalent in, let's say. But 
when, when you say the American murder rate is 4.8 per 100,000, it's worth noting that the black American murder rate is about 16 per 100,000. So the white American, uh, you can even do a better adjustment here because there's a lot of pro there are a lot of problems in Appalachia too. The white Northern American murder rate, what people think of as a white American is literally about on par with Europe. So there, that is almost nothing to do with access to guns. When you get into states that fit that demographic bill, Montana, South Dakota, but that have demographics and vast areas of open space that are similar to what you'd see in say Sweden, you're gonna see a very similar rate of crime. Uh, gun crime is concentrated in cities, it's concentrated among minority men, it's concentrated among young men. And yeah, the weapons of choice are cheap, everyday guns. The a final comment about this, this is important because ending gun crime would require basically banning guns. If you banned thousand dollar assault rifles, you'd piss off a couple of local bankers and so on, but you're not actually gonna have much impact on violence involving low ranking members of the gangster disciples or something like that. So to get rid of handguns, to get rid of knives, I mean, you'd have to make these enormous social changes. I mean, we're seeing Britain trying them and failing right now. So I, I'm not really sure that's on the table. I'm willing to discuss stopping mass shootings or providing more employment for young men so that the, the murder rate incidentally declines, something like that. But the idea that we're gonna take, take guns off the street, the thing you sometimes hear, that's not very realistic in my professional opinion, in fact. All right, one more point. And I'm actually, I'm, I apologize. I forgot to share this link with you, which is right. I came across this, this chart uh, and I think it was the New England uh, uh, Journal, uh, if I remember correctly. And uh, what what was interesting here is uh, they knew this is the 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 leading causes of death among children and adolescents in America, nineteen ninety nine to two thousand twenty, and uh, it. So basically, they have seen a firearm-related injury has increased in the last few years, as you see over here. It was motor vehicle crashes were pretty much the main thing. And when they say adolescents, obviously, they're defined as persons from the age of 1 to 19 years of age. Now, what is very interesting is when I looked at the breakdown even further, right? When when I started looking, looking further ahead and I tried to break down, so... Mass shootings as such, what they talk about mass shootings, they are a very tiny segment of this overall uh, set of firearm-related uh, firearm deaths amongst adolescents. But a lot of them, unfortunately, um, are uh, suicides or by shootings and things like that, which are very unfortunate. Now, what happened over there was, now I want to take it to... Uh, Michael Chomer's uh, Substack essay, yeah. very, you know, I mean, I do not f understand this argument where uh, Michael Chomer says that, uh, you know, so I'm going to read the whole paragraph for the benefit of everyone. So stories about the use of guns in self-defense, a good guy with a gun dispensing with a bad guy with a gun are legion among gun enthusiasts and conservative talk radio hosts. But a 1998 study in the, in the Journal of Trauma and Acute Career Surgery to take one of the many examples found that, quote, every time a gun in the home was used in self-defense or legally justifiable shooting, there were four unintentional shootings, seven criminal assaults or homicides, and 11 attempted or commit completed suicides, end quote. That means a gun is 22 times more likely to be used in a criminal assault, 
an accident death or injury a suicide attempt or a homicide then it is for self defense a 2003 study published in the journals of annals of emergency medicine examined gun ownership levels among thousands of murder and suicide victims and non victims and found that having guns in the home was associated with a 41% increase in homicide and 244% increase in suicide the second amendment protects your right to own a gun but having one in your house involves a risk benefit cat calculation you should seriously consider what do you make of this argument that michael shermer makes there are a couple things first of all i mean shermer is a good social scientist you know i mean he I, the basic point that there's some risk to having a gun in your house is obvious i mean i would advise young married couples or something like that if you're going to to make that move get some training um i i think that if when you look at gun accidental gun shootings uh accidental homicides plus negligent homicides they're overwhelmingly concentrated among young people who haven't much trained to fight i mean it takes I mean, you often see these things a hunter shoots his friend in the ass and they're they're in the woods and there's not too much that can be done and that becomes a death and you can't help thinking you don't want to make fun of it but that that's idiotic and it's easily avoidable so i mean avoid that sort of thing go take the concealed carry course if, i mean if you're in, in a low crime neighborhood maybe put it in the box you know you don't just have a gun under your pillow most of the time you know um any of the time for me uh, but so all that is all that is there there are other weapons uh one of the things i will recommend just fairly large audience here um their wildfire mace the crowd breaking spray that was traditionally used by uh, big city police departments is now available on sites like tebow tech and is one of the most effective imaginable weapons i mean if you go to tebow tech and you buy a gallon canister of wildfire mace and you you know hit the compressor on that and there's one home invader in your house i mean they're going they're going to be out of action for 30 to 40 minutes hell you might be out of action for 2 to 5 minutes depending on the wind currents but i mean like you'll you'll be able to the second part sort of a joke and you'll be able to probably resolve that situation but with all that said i i think the this sort of claim that guns are these dangerous useless things that don't stop crime is absolutely factually false and although shermer is not himself responsible for any of these studies the studies that make this claim tend to contain some pretty significant flaws i mean so the first one first of all it dates back to 1998 so in general we don't use 25 year old data but also the bigger problem here is that these these issues aren't occurring in the same house if that even has to be said so when they say that you know a gun will be used once to deter a rapist for every 11 times it will be used in a suicide this isn't occurring within the same family what they're doing there is taking broad columns of data that don't at all relate to one another and comparing them so they are saying that in a typical year there are well well it must be over 3 or 4000 given the number of suicides but say there are, there are 4000 incidents where a gun is actually fired actually striking someone to deter a felony crime so that's column 1 and then in column 2 they're saying there are 40000 incidents where someone commits suicide with a gun but if this even has to be said these aren't the same people your individual risk analysis as a stable upper middle class homeowner where you know that there are 4 or 5000 say in-house rapes that are stopped every year by guns isn't necessarily affected by the fact that there are also an entirely different group of people that kill themselves if that makes sense i mean for example they they note that this is to me the wildest part of the study they note that for every criminal stopped by a gun there are seven crimes committed with a gun yes but again by different people against different people 
So they're taking, as far as I understand, I can't think of another methodology here. I mean, I, I read the study when you sent it to me, it's LinkedIn Schormer. But I mean, what they're saying is that for every year, there are say 40,000, 35,000, let's not exaggerate, face-to-face -face handgun robberies. And then there are four to 5,000, I'm assuming, crimes that are prevented with a gun. But again, the people that prevented the crimes with the gun are not also using their gun to commit handgun robberies. I mean, you could just as easily look at that data and say, well, in a very dangerous world where more than 40,000 homes are invaded every year, I want my gun. Uh, I think that that's the most basic point. Another point that I would make, if that makes sense. Another point that I would make here also is that that study very specifically focuses on situations, if I recall, where the gun was discharged. And I think where someone was hit. Again, it's important to go through these pinprick, make sure you're being correct. But that doesn't necessarily relate to the number of crimes that were deterred with a gun. When I think back to friends' fathers who were small merchants of, say, Mexican, Pakistani, Nigerian descent in Chicago, there quite frequently would be an individual that would walk into the store, look around suspiciously. You, the merchant might move behind the counter, rack the shotgun, and a very distinctive noise there. The guy leaves. That's it. That's a crime deterred with a gun if you have any experience in a major city. But you're not simply going to shoot the individual in the store to, to make a really emphatic version of your point. I mean, more sophisticated studies estimate that they're between 0.69, yeah, 0.69 million, which would be 690,000, and 4 million crimes every year that are deterred by gun ownership. People are less likely to strike in high weaponry neighborhoods, burglaries less common in the South. There are jokes about areas of Chicago like Little Italy that only an insane robber would ever go there, so on down the line. So I, I think point one, they're using a very distinctive definition of the prevention of a crime which is you actually shoot or shoot at the criminal. Um, and two, even there, if several thousand people per year shoot and shoot at criminals, that's not an argument against guns because an even higher number of people who are different people commit crimes or kill themselves. So certainly when you make that decision, are we going to have a rifle in the house with a child? I mean, you think about that, you talk about that with your wife, so on down the line. But I, I don't think that study convinces me that the same couple is going to be an increased danger from a gun. Uh, and there, there's a lot of data like this. Like, I mean, one study that is real finds that, not that the first one is, is badly, terribly flawed, but the, another study finds that your, your risk of murder increases by about 41% if you have a gun in the house, i.e. your spouse is 41% more likely than they would be with a knife. It's almost always your spouse that kills you at home to take the gun and after perhaps an unpleasant sexual encounter or a, a discussion about finances or something to shoot you and kill you. Um, but I think the issue there is what's your baseline risk of being murdered? I mean, if in your life, you know that all these numbers are tiny, first of all, I don't think people need to run around like headless cowards worrying about risk at this level. But so if in your life you think you'll be the victim of two burglaries, if you live in a city like Chicago, you'll prevent one with a gun. And the data indicates that may well be the case. But your risk of being murdered is up 41%. And the, the data is absolute on that. That is correct. The, the second question is, what's your risk of being murdered? What are the chances that your wife is going to kill you as a dentist or whatever the case might be? And I think most people would find that that's extremely low. Whether or not the gun purchase is justified you're not significantly enhancing from baseline. It's a very specific subset of people that are killed with guns. The Looking at both those studies, I will say, the one significant impact of a gun in the home, other than that you're deterring crime, you're making your neighborhood a little safer, seems to be that you are increasing your own baseline risk of suicide 
if you were already in a high risk category for suicide. And this is this is what I'm talking about. And suicide is incredibly specific. The percentage of suicides that are white, unsuccessful males over 40 is extraordinarily high. So, I mean, and I would I'd be interested in how that I don't mean to be glib, but how that correlates with the category of gun owners. I mean, those don't sound like totally distinct categories to me, actually. But I mean, again, do your own risk analysis. I'm not even sure whether individual, often honorable suicide, it's a religious sin, but whether that's something that should be lumped into the same sort of category as murder, it's certainly a very different thing in most ethical senses, and I'm not a very religious man, you know, but that that seems to be most of the increase in deaths. I, I don't think that the, that the other part of that equation where you're weighing a reduction in crime against a tiny increase in homicide is going to have much effect on the risk you experience in life. But when people talk lessons, when people talk about gun violence in the cities, they're never talking about 50-year-old veterans killing themselves after a failure in business. What people who are anti-gun always do is just lump all of these numbers together to try to make it seem as though there's an epidemic of gun murders. There, there simply is not. There are, in a typical year, if you have, say, 40,000 gun deaths, and I don't, I don't think you do, but 20,000 or more of those would be suicides. Of the rest, easily 80% would be gang-related you're going to be left with two or 3,000 murders every year. And that's where you get that clump of rifle deaths, probably, that involve normal citizens that have some training with weapons killing a person that is not attacking them. And I, I would try to reduce that by as high a figure as we can by as much as possible. But that tiny category looks nothing like the figures of 40,000, 50,000 that are trotted out in the media. That That's interesting. Another thing that went in my head is when when people design studies like this and maybe i'm saying something extremely stupid is like these these questions that they ask like what if i asked what are your probabilities of your dying of motor vehicle accidents or something like that if you owned a car vis-a-vis -vis not owning a car what if i did uh, a study where i have baseball bats in my house vis-a-vis -vis not having a baseball bat in my house and 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 maybe i find some number and the percentages you know they might sound very sexy in that sense oh your risk increases by so and so percentage they do you see what i'm trying to say it's like i don't understand the aim of these kinds of analysis at times yeah i mean i think that the well, the aim is to present guns as a dangerous. This is something we see a lot in social science, actually. So getting to the point, the, the goal is to present guns as a dangerous and non-rewarding risk producing externality. Social scientists in the USA are an interesting bunch because they are we are mostly not unsuccessful, solidly upper middle class, work mostly for that network of state universities, normal people. But for whatever mathematicians, but for whatever reason, the block of social scientists, sociologists, and the people that work on this leans almost entirely to the left. Um, I recall asking on Twitter, and this isn't just me as like one of the five who occasionally votes Republican. It's just something notable. I mean, I recall asking on Twitter who the most famous Republican sociologist was out of genuine curiosity, and people couldn't name one for quite a while. Um, somebody finally got back to like Lasker in the 1980s. But I, you can't help but think that this influences what people are looking at. So I'm going to go back through that study from Shermer and just point by point, make sure that what I said was correct. But I'm pretty damn positive that what you're doing is just comparing 
the number of crimes prevented with a gun by actually shooting to something like the number of suicides, like X thousand here, X thousand here. And that's an easy way to make guns sound dangerous. The, the question is, though, there are two things. One, and I want, I want to avoid rambling here, but one is what you just said. Like, couldn't you do this with almost anything? Like, if you have a car, doesn't your risk of dying in a vehicular accident increase dramatically? I mean, sure, that's, that's point one. Point two, though, is what are the positive externalities associated with car ownership? And we don't see that very often with guns. I mean, when someone actually looked at this, have you read John Lott on this? No, I've not. Somebody actually wrote a, a book called More Guns, Less Crime, where he did the obvious and he looked at how things like rates of firearm ownership in a neighborhood correlate with overall rate of crime in that neighborhood. And he found that the rate of firearm ownership and by extension, strong dads in an area correlated very strongly with decreased crime in the area. Um, which I don't think comes as a surprise to much of anyone. I mean, I would also assume that having a gun in the house correlates with decreased feelings of fear. It correlates with increased, especially in the shop, with increased nonviolent resolution of criminal conflicts, so on down the line. I mean, there's a fair amount of research that's now documenting the fact that countries that are increasingly disarming, uh, Sweden, Britain, New Zealand, are beginning to post some of the highest rates of burglary and rape in the world. Uh, I don't I don't think that is an accidental correlation. So it it's pretty e I guess what I'm saying here is that it's pretty easy to take any complex issue and examine only one facet of it. Do guns in the home slightly increase domestic violence? Well, yes, I would imagine they do. Um but it, it is also the case that guns result in tens, if not hundreds of thousands a year of annual incidents where without a fatal shot being fired, a crime is deterred. So when you have a block of social scientists that leans almost entirely to one side of the issue, you're going to get a lot more of the first group of studies than the second. And this, uh, not to go too far afield, but this is something you see pretty often. I mean, for years, the example that I use is for years, authoritarianism in the social sciences was thought of as a right-wing phenomenon. And the very simple, this goes back to Theodore Adorno's authoritarian personality, so on down the line. And the reason for this, not to put too fine a point on it, was that social scientists would ask people a series of questions about what they identified as target groups, like Jews. Um, so the, the questions on a survey questionnaire might be along the lines of how important do you feel it is that society controls the behavior of Jewish influencers or communists or something like that? And the finding was that most people weren't bigots, but that people on the right were more authoritarian than people on the left. And only recently, one of the top PhD students at Emory pointed out the obvious, which would be that it's just as easy to do this in reverse. So he asked a group of people questions about controlling the behavior of right-wing negatively perceived groups. I, I don't know if this is one of his actual examples, but say anti-maskers, militia members. And what he found was that left-wingers are at least as authoritarian as right-wingers, uh, probably a little bit more so. And this is something that I don't think would come as a shock to anyone who's ever seen a campus protest or an Antifa rally. But it came as a bit of a shock to the social sciences because no one had ever looked at it. And I suspect that more guns, less crime is sort of a similar rock thrown from the, you know, 3% one side of the debate at a majority that's not too interested in testing a lot of aspects of this question. 
So the suicide data is interesting, but I mean, I, I think we've covered the other strengths and flaws of, of the, the research that exists so far. I'm actually not surprised that you're saying this. And interestingly enough, it was skeptic.com that did that 2021 study, if I remember correctly, on how, how informed are Americans about race and policing. And oh, yeah. they found out how people tend to overestimate it. So actually, it was Michael Shermer, right? He he is uh, the editor uh, at, yeah. at skeptic.com. And they, they did a wonderful study where they showed that, uh, which is why I was surprised when uh, Dr. Shermer wrote this article, because I was like, Another argument that is given before I get into the rand.org one, another argument that is always given, oh, it's not the AR-15 itself. I'm just trying to tell you everything that I hear from yeah. my friends and family who are in America. They're like, no, they have, I don't know, they use something like bumper, bump stocks or something like that for the gun. They say, oh, yeah. they upgrade the gun or something of that sort and that becomes a problem and they do it. That should be banned. And 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 uh, then they would say, well, we are not against the Second Amendment. They should just increase age. So I'll give you an example. Like, uh, like there was Matthew McConaughey is in the news where he says, uh, we need to do something. You know, there is... Uh, a window of opportunity for enacting meaningful gun legislation. Uh, we should raise the minimum age of buying the AR-15 to 21. And uh, we should be very tactical in our legislations and stuff like that. Because I think uh, uh, Matthew McConaughey is from Uvalde, Texas, if if I remember correctly. So th there'll be statements like these, that, but, but how can you allow these upgrades in the guns? That should not be allowed. And that is what we are talking about. But then I listen to someone like, uh, uh, I should not strawman this, but I'm still putting it there by AOC. And she would be like, this should just all go away. All guns should be banned. Like that's the, the batshit crazy version in the American left, I guess. Yeah. So, I mean, first of all, I think that a lot of people, uh, again, I think a lot of people on the political left are very open about the fact that they'd like to get rid of all guns or at least all semi-automatics. I mean, Beto O'Rourke has said on two separate occasions, yes, I'm coming for your AR-15. And then, yes, I'm coming for your rifle. I mean, AOC basically said just a couple of days ago, let's throw it all away. Again, when we talk about gun violence in American inner cities or sort of trailer park rural areas, we're talking about violence that's committed perhaps 90% of the time with handguns, including old school revolvers. So, I mean, to really make a dent in this type of violence, you would need to get rid of guns. And I will say very bluntly, I mean, there is an almost there's a practical, almost amoral aspect to leadership or to serious research. I am not willing to give up the home defense, hunting, target shooting, et cetera, capabilities of what would it be in the USA, 300 to 400 million guns to cut a far smaller category of annual deaths, many self-inflicted, many due to violent mutual combat between young men by a certain factor, by perhaps a third. I don't think that's a logical leadership decision to make. That's what would be required to dramatically slash gun violence. And there are many people that are openly willing to do that. I think that's a bad move in our country. I mean, there are, di there are different systems in different countries. I mean, things that are reasonably successful or at least haven't resulted in wars around the world from black economic empowerment in South Africa to the partitioning of the United Kingdom and Britain, I don't think are good ideas for America. Similarly, I don't think getting rid of the Second Amendment of the United States Constitution is something that's going to happen in the USA. I, I don't. Um, so and you can talk about similar things, women's rights in the great Islamic states, Arabia, and so on down the line. Of course, we in these countries can work on these issues. The world can work with us on them, but that, that's not a thing that's going to happen. That is what would be required to dramatically end, to really re reduce by more than half or end this type of violence. 
I personally think much of it would be replaced by knife and explosive violence, given the British example. But we would we would see perhaps if if that were to come to be. But I mean, the, the bump stock thing, I think, is almost the reverse of the AOC argument, which is what I think is the honest argument here. I, I don't really have a strong position on, for example, restricting the sale of bump or bounce back stocks to people over 21 or people with something like a concealed carry license. The, the point there is that those kind of high-end fighting tools don't have much to do with the gun violence totals. I mean, we just keep we keep coming back to this same point, right? Like the majority of gun crime involves, again, don't want to be glib, but young black and redneck men, average age of maybe 20, using ordinary handguns. Some of them also have a knife on them at the same time. I mean, this is, it's, it's bloody violence. It's a problem, but it's not sophisticated mafia-style crime. If you were to ban all bump stocks, I suppose you would have stopped part of the Las Vegas shooting. But I can't think of too many major recent incidents of crime or terror that you would have prevented. Because very, very few people, other than professional weapons instructors, have a gun with an optical sight on the top, a bump stock on the back, and so on down the line. I mean, that that's not what the local Coke dealer in California or Chicago is using. So, I mean, we can have a discussion about that, but that that's not really going to do much to resolve the problem. Matthew McConaughey, by the way, is a guy who's from Uvalde, as I think you mentioned, and was just, he's disgusted this happened in his city. He's disgusted with the police. It's sort of a sympathetic speech, but he literally threw everything imaginable at it. He also said things like, we need better parenting. So we need to go through that speech to the extent that anything a celebrity says should ever be taken seriously and see whether there are any solutions to come out of it. Um, it, it sounded almost like he named, he listed everything that's been suggested as a way to reduce gun violence. And some of those things might, some of them might not. I think mm -hmm. there are four or five specific things that would, as per my article and some other writing I've done on this, but that's, that's, that's an opinion. We haven't tested that either. Yeah. So now let us focus on this again. I'm going to share the screen again. So this yeah. is a very interesting, a very detailed study that was called the science of gun policy, which I had shared with you. Now, I'm not going to share the whole 400 pages, but it was an interesting study done by Rand Corporation. And this is what they say in the key findings. Again, I'm going to read. I'm only reading this for the benefit of the audio uh, listeners. So that's all I'm doing. So they say scientific evidence on gun policies effects is modest, but supports a few conclusions. Of more than 200 combinations of policies and outcomes, surprisingly, few have been the subject of methodologically rigorous investigation. Notably, research into five of the examined outcomes is either unavailable or almost entirely inconclusive, and three of these five outcomes represent issues of particular concern to gun owners or gun industry stakeholders. Available evidence supports the conclusion that child access prevention laws or safe storage laws reduce self-inflicted fatal or non-fatal firearm injuries, including unintentional and intentional self-injuries among youth. There is supportive evidence that stand-your-ground laws are associated with increases in firearm homicides and moderate evidence that they increase the total number of homicides. There is moderate evidence that state laws prohibiting gun ownership by individuals subject to domestic violence, restraining orders decrease total and firearm-related intimate partner homicides. There is moderate evidence that waiting period reduce firearm suicides that total homicides and limited evidence that they reduce total suicides and firearm homicides. No studies meeting the author's inclusion criteria have examined the effects of gun-free zones, laws allowing armed staff in kindergarten through grade 12 schools, or required reporting of lost or stolen firearms. Now, I'm going to read the suggestions also, recommendations. 
States without child access prevention laws should consider adopting them as a strategy to reduce firearm suicides and unintentional firearm injuries and deaths. States with your stand withstand your ground laws should consider repealing them as a strategy for reducing firearm homicides. State without laws prohibiting gun ownership while individuals are subject to domestic violence restraining orders should consider passing such laws as a strategy for reducing total and firearm-related intimate partner homicides. States without waiting period laws should consider adopting them as a strategy for reducing suicides and homicides. To improve understanding of the real effects on gun policies, Congress should consider appropriating funds for a significant program of research of research on gun policy and gun violence reduction at levels comparable to the government's current investment in other threats to public safety and health. To improve understanding of outcomes of critical concern to many in gun policy debates, the U.S. government and private research sponsors should support research examining the effects of gun laws on a wider set of outcomes, including crime, defensive gun use, hunting and sport shooting, officer-involved shootings, and the gun industry. To foster a robust research program on gun policy, Congress should consider eliminating or loosening the restrictions it has imposed on the use of gun trace data for research purposes. Researchers, reviewers, academics, and science reporters should expect new analysis of the effects of gun policies to improve on earlier studies by persuasively addressing the methodological limitations of earlier studies, such as problems with statistical power, model overfitting, overfitting, covariate selection, and poorly calibrated standard errors. Now, uh, what do you make of this particular one? by Ryan? Because this was a pretty comprehensive study they did. They, they looked around quite a few. And they've been doing this, if I remember, for from 2018. So they revisited in 2020, and then they revisited it again now. It was like 400 pages. I, I, I had a very hard time reading it, uh, to be very honest. But I tried my best to read it. Yeah, and I, I kind of did the same, try my best to read it. I mean, 400 pages is a good-sized book. I mean, my version of the Christian Bible, I think, is 806. <laughs> but, I mean, so what I think about this, first, I think they didn't. Rand is great, one of the great global consultancies. Again, I have no problem with any of the researchers here. But I don't think they did a ton of actual research. One of the things they kept saying is there are they did a meta-analysis, essentially, and they kept saying, well, there are no on-point good studies of this policy. So this, again... I don't want to just keep criticizing social science, which is the easiest niche for, again, one of the five researchers on the right. But this is something that is fairly common, where, again, almost no one in American or, for that matter, Indian, Britain, British, any of the better soft sciences in the world today, very few people just straight up make up data. What people do is, for a variety of reasons, tenure seeking, trying to get eight articles out of the same short book political correctness here in the West, so on down the line, just avoid researching certain tough topics altogether. So, I mean, I noticed going through this paper and then listening to your synopsis that most of the sort of conservative solutions here, which in my opinion, as both a boss and an educator are the solutions most likely to work, had never been analyzed. For example, they said, this is absolutely staggering, that there are no good studies, no analyses for the meta-analysis of whether hardening schools works. This is kind of astonishing because in the USA, we've seen left and right going back and forth like cats and dogs about this for a week. And they, they just have no data. It, it's fascinating to see this from, you know, one of the, again, one of the major global firms. So I would I would like to see, I, I want to say this politely, someone look at whether arming the citizenry works because that's going to influence my position on whether it does. I think it does. You think it doesn't. But let's look. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's the most basic thing. Test the conservative solutions. 
Um, I recently, well, I, I didn't write. I was the second or third author on this paper, honestly. But um, myself, Bob Maranto, Pat Wolf, uh, Maddie Harris, a couple other social scientists. Did, well, actually, that's that's the core block that's publishing. Um, <laughs> I did actually look at the black link. You never want to have 18 names on the paper. Some people will get footnotes, you know, but I mean, like, it's just, we took a look at the Black Lives Matter literature. And the question that we were asking was, has there been an, has there been an effective look at whether BLM actually reduced crime and reduced police shootings? And we found there's been very little. There's been one paper that found that Black Lives Matter slightly drove up the crime rate, basically, uh, and not, not even just slightly. In, in cities that saw BLM protests and then implemented suggested solutions, uh, between 1,000 and 6,000 more Black people, specifically, I think, died than otherwise would have. So there, there is some evidence there. But almost no one had looked at the question of whether these marches, these protests had had an effect on police shooting and more broadly, what the factors were that seemed to make police departments more effective. So we wrote this paper and we've gotten some engagement. I mean, we Bob created an index uh, rank of the PPI ranking police departments. And it, it's really quite simple. I mean, there, there's a log function in there, but it's, it's essentially just what's the crime rate over what's the rate of people shot by the cops? So it's the kind of thing you want to know about your police department. Are they able to lock up criminals without shooting taxpayers? It, it really is that simple in almost any country in the world that you can think of. Um, so we did this and we found, we then ranked all the police departments and we found some things you wouldn't expect. Like New York City has the best police department in the country. Uh, Boston and San Diego are right up there. All three are large high crime cities and New York is known for being New York. So it, mm -hmm. it, bit of a shocker. But you have to understand, this is true in education as well, that you can only be logically criticized in terms of an understanding of the baseline you're starting from. So getting New York down to 500 homicides a year isn't like getting Peoria, Illinois down to 500 homicides a year. I mean, they've, they've actually done a fantastic job. Uh, but at any rate, we ranked police departments and we were able to identify certain things like getting rogue officers off the street, two complaints and you're gone, that really correlate with the success of your police department. So I'm plugging a paper by myself, Bob Maranto, Patrick Wolf, and Maddie Harris. But I'm also saying that it's it's a bit odd that very few people, a shout out to Roland Fryer as well, but very few people had done this. You would think the two key questions to ask about Black Lives Matter are, did the movement reduce police violence and did the movement reduce violence? And in fact, it did neither, but that's been scrupulously avoided. The literature looks at things like, for example, did Black Lives Matter mobilize and engage African-American voters? And to be to be fair, that's that's an interesting question. It's the kind of safe but useful question that'll get you to tenure. No offense. But it, it's the same thing that I saw looking through this. They just did a lot of the solutions hadn't been tested. I would bet that anything that, you know, John Lott endorsed probably wasn't wasn't checked out too, too hardcore. Um now, in terms of those things that they found that did work, uh, safe storage, again, is one of those things no one has a problem with. Now, again, when we talk about gun violence, I think it's extremely dishonest, frankly, to lump in things like accidents where someone gets shot in the foot and individual suicides from war veterans with murders to some extent. I mean, when you talk about gun crime, gun violence, I think we all have an idea of murder, rape, what that means. But since that is something of a convention, of course, you could reduce accidents, probably suicides as well, by keeping guns out of line of sight, easy access. 
Now, again, the problem with that is if someone breaks in your house waving an axe, you're going to want to be able to use your gun. There has to be a sweet spot compromise there. But something like a one-two combo lock on a box, would that save some kids? Yeah. And at that level of compromise, I think most people would say, okay. Now, again, that's hard to mandate by law. You know, I mean, you can say we require or strongly encourage that you have your gun in a gun container. Well, what does that mean? How could you prove I did or I did not? If there's a dead burglar in the house, I mean, surely if that's the law, I would say I unsnapped the gun case. I'm a reasonably ethical guy, but I'm also a homeowner who doesn't want to go to jail and touch it a little bit before the cops get there. I mean, I don't see that, that there's a really a legal solution there, but it's certainly good that homeowners are aware of that. The The thing that I thought was interesting, the one I kind of disagree with was stand your, your ground laws, get a negative review here. I, I looked through this section pretty intensely. What they find is that stand your ground laws reduce homicides. But it's important to understand this in context. A homicide isn't a murder. A homicide is just any situation where a person is killed by another active human actor. So, of course, standard ground laws increase, increase homicides. What a standard ground law allows is if you're being attacked, say your wife is being sexually molested by someone, you can fight them or back away slowly or draw your weapon rather than flee, which actually is required in several states. So, of course, if the, the rapist or the attacker advances on you, you're probably going to shoot them. And that would then be a homicide. But that, that's not a bug. That's a feature. You can kill violent criminals if they insist on harassing and threatening you. I mean, you don't want to. But I, I think it's, again, this, this gets into the sort of thing that you, you have to look at with this data. Are they classifying the deaths of, say, sexual assaulters as part of a standard ground altercation as murders? Because that's extremely unusual. Um, anyway, so a lot, of, a lot of this kind of technical stuff. The, oh, one thing I strongly agree with them on is red flag laws. This is, I, I, don't, I don't know whether you want to hear my rambling opinion on every one of these damn things, but I guess that's why I'm on the show, actually. But like, I think that when people talk about common sense gun control, I think that there's this feeling among conservative men in the USA, as you look at our culture, like they're coming for our rights. And this is this is mm -hmm. white guys, black guys, people of East and South Asian descent, just go to a bar or a golf course. But like another goddamn thing, homeowners association told me I have to cut my goddamn grass exactly six inches short. We used to have freedom in this country. And there's an element of truth to this. Like a speed limit in the immediate cul-de-sac around my house is like 12 miles an hour. You know, guns, people are talking about a gun registry in Kentucky. The, the land of the free has seen substantial modification. So I think there's a lot of worry within the cadre of people that makes up most of the group of gun owners. Okay, what next? I don't want to give this kind of information to the government. My own opinion is that you're already giving your entire criminal record and most of your psych history to the government every time you buy a firearm. Um, and that's destroyed after a certain period of time. But I don't see a problem with red flag additions to that. A red flag addition would simply be that within a year, if you've been reported by a mental health agency of any kind, and this would include schools, in my opinion, or as a domestic abuse participant, let's say, by a partner, you can't buy a gun. Um, I, I think that makes perfect sense. And one of the things about this is that an effective red flag system, which was supposed to be in place in two of these three cases, would have stopped almost all recent mass shootings. I mean, all these people were visibly crazy. This is this is the elephant in the room because we're reluctant to discuss mental health. We now often use labels other than crazy in day to day conversation. The left wants to spin this to um, public conversation. The left wants to spin this to guns broadly. But like the Uvalde shooter, for example, there's a well-known social media video where he's posing with a bag of cats. 
literally. I'm not going to encourage people to Google Uvalde shooter bag of cats. You probably need to go to an alternate platform to find it, actually. But it's as disgusting as it sounds. And people were aware of this. District was aware of it. An employer was aware of it, I believe. I don't have a problem if you're holding up a dead cat you with you not being able to buy a high-velocity firearm. I think anyone who would object to that kind of is in that gun nut category. So that 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 was that one. Um, it, he'd also been reported for various social media comments, so on a mental health grounds. An ex-girlfriend had come forward and said he was terrifying. She was scared of him. The Buffalo shooter was a step beyond even that. I mean, when school resumed in person, and you or someone in the audience might correct some details here, but he went to school for a week in a hazmat suit. I mean, he, yeah, he showed up in a full-on hazmat suit, babbling crazily in second class. That's the thing that happened. So a red flag law would allow you to, even if you can't throw him out of school, although I'm not sure why you couldn't sanction someone for this kind of behavior, but if you can't, uh, in the modern USA, you could definitely say the school psychiatrist says that this person may have a significant mental health issue, and then there's a restraint on the purchase of a firearm. Uh, and I mean, there, there'd have to be a way to overcome this. You could have your doctor say you're you're all right after a real session or something. But that seems per and obviously very rough parameters here for me. But the, the basic idea, bag of cats equals no gun, seems perfectly reasonable to me. And I, I think to most people. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think the problem from what I have understood, and I tried my best to read as much as I could. Like I also read this, you know, essay in what was that website called? The Conversation.com. And even there, one thing that stood out to me, and maybe this is my last question to you: like uh-huh. Finland, Sweden, Switzerland, they also have higher gun ownership in in American countries. But now, what is unique about America is if you look at the rate of firearm homicide by one hundred thousand population. Like Finland is a good example. America seems to have a very high rate of homicide. I mean, is there a cultural issue? Are are, are Americans in a way, I don't know how else to ask this, are Americans refusing to acknowledge maybe there's something wrong in the culture then? Because Finland is a good example, right? Yeah. So first of all, I think there are three things there. One, the United States actually is not an exceptional outlier among countries or even among developed countries when it comes to violence. Oh, it's just if you go to uh, the if you go to the global dot com and you look up homicide rate in North America, North America is generally treated as, as its own zone by political scientists because there's so much demographic diversity. There's so much past ethnic conflict in states like the USA, Jamaica, Canada. And I mean, that, that's basically it, those two variables. Oh, also massive drug influx from south of the border. But of the 18 states in the North American region, the United States of America actually has the 17th highest or the second lowest homicide rate. Um, this is uh, the globaleconomy.com slash rankings. And I'm looking at these states. We're in North America. So in the North American zone, I mean, number one, obviously, is El Salvador. I mean, that that is not really a comparator, but 61.8 murders per 100,000 people. But then you get down to all these highly civilized states. I mean, Jamaica, Bahamas, Mexico, Puerto Rico, it's part of our country, Costa Rica, Barbados, you know, all these island paradises, USA. So we're at five per 100,000 per year. The only country we're beating is Canada, which is at 1.8. Um, and I mean, if, even if you flip over to Europe, I mean, we're ahead of Ukraine, Russia, Lithuania. I mean, large players. I'm not, I'm not making excuses here. We have the murder rates too high. Yeah, that's, that's the North American one. 
But I mean, the murder rate's too high. But we're not, in fact, a unique global outlier. And you're also right. We're not a unique global outlier when it comes to guns either. I have a lot of what now, first of all, looking at this world chart, I'm going to say I have a lot of questions. Like I'm scrolling up from the bottom. I mean, like Guinea Bissau in Africa, 1.1 per 100,000. Croatia, 1.1. I mean, Bosnia, 1.2. Burkina Faso, 1.3. I mean, so with a lot of the African and Eastern European countries, I mean, my question would be who's keeping this data? I mean, you know, I, I really have my questions. But at any rate, when you look at more stable countries, when you look at Europe, North America, the USA is not a unique outlier. Uh, we're certainly higher than you'd like to see. And again, the bottom of this chart, like, okay, so Singapore, I believe, Japan, I believe, Macau, I believe, Indonesia, 0.4. I don't know about that. Cyprus, I mean, so let's see where we fall. We are in 32nd place right next to Argentina, right next to Lithuania. Okay, not ideal, but at any rate, not shocking either. And again, I, I think many of the countries in the bottom half of that chart, including most of Africa, most of the stands are lying, would be a polite way to put it. But at any rate, USA is not an extraordinary outlier when it comes to homicide rate. We're not an extraordinary outlier when it comes to guns. I mean, you've mentioned a number of countries like Finland, Switzerland, Israel, that in fact often have far more permissive rules regarding gun ownership. I mean, there are a number of nations where adults are expected to have at least one fighting rifle at home. I mean, when you look at the USA, I mean, it's important to have an honest conversation about this. The reason that the USA has a higher than average crime rate is that we have very specific groups with a hyper high murder rate right now. Um, my group is prominent among these. I mean, the murder rate for African-Americans right now is about 17 per 100,000 um, as versus about two for whites. And the white figure is substantially slanted by a large North versus South difference. I mean, you're not going to have that level of white murder rate in, say, urban Arkansas. So is there a cultural problem? It depends what you mean by the culture. I think that when you look at the USA, there's a reason you're seeing figures along many axes that are more, more comparable to what you might see in Russia developed Latin America, et cetera, than what you might see in Norway. Um, we are an extraordinarily large continental-sized country. We're also extraordinarily demographically diverse. So we have a long history of large oppressed in the past, at least minority groups like Black Americans. Another key factor is that we are and remain a nation of immigrants. So every generation we have a substantial inflow of mostly poor working class males from everywhere in the world. So, I mean, when you look at the immigrant crime rate, when you look at the African-American crime rate, when you look at some regional rates, you're seeing almost everything that keeps our figures where they are. And I would say that, yeah, there are some cultural modifications that you, you want to make in all three of those situations. But actual access to guns, I don't think plays a particularly big role. Again, the, the heaviest guns per capita state in the USA is Montana. And I would, in fact, a one simple closing line as you read this question, I would suspect that the murder rate for those Swedes in Montana and South Dakota is pretty similar to the murder rate for Swedes in Sweden. I, I don't think necessarily think there's a massive cultural revamp that needs to happen there. I think that as you move down the map and as you move down kind of the 
the tale of our history, you get into some things that drive up the murder rate elsewhere. But just the presence of a gun isn't going to make the average sane person kill somebody. Fair enough. I, I I think the gun gun culture debate in America is just fascinating, at least for someone who's sitting in India, to be very honest. I, I, I understand. I don't understand most of it, to be very honest. Sometimes I wonder... Um, and and i and i get the unique case of american history and where the second amendment came from but i don't know sometimes i listen to arguments like we are going to fight against the state and i'm like your state has nuclear weapons you're not going to fight against them well i mean That's we kind of- i mean i to some extent i agree but like we just lost a war in afghanistan i mean it, it sucks to phrase it that way but we pulled off the battlefield there's actually a considerable record of success as we both know just from reading the books of disorganized, fairly skilled militias fighting corrupt, centralized state governments. I would prefer not to see this happen in the USA, but I mean, that's essentially what we encountered in Vietnam. I mean, the Viet Mm -hmm. Cong were never a national army. They were a partisan force of this kind, I guess would be how you describe it. That's what we encountered in Afghanistan with the different groups that became the Taliban that fought with us as the Northern Alliance and so on. So, I mean, the US government has nuclear weapons, sure, but is it going to use them against Detroit? We'd have to see. But I do think that the fear of the citizenry resisting, of, of perhaps a thousand soldiers being shot, something like that. And I, again, obviously, you don't want to see that happen. But that's one of the reasons that you didn't see, even under COVID-19, the same insanity here that you saw in large civilized peers like Australia. I mean, to a very real extent, I, I think you did definitely see more. In fact, I've, I've run this model before. Countries that had arms um, from stable Africa to Israel to the USA tended on average to respond in a dramatically less draconian fashion to COVID. It's, it's checkable, you know, so we didn't, we didn't have whatever the the camp was called in Oz, um, Heartland Springs or something. Is it a worthwhile trade? We had more COVID deaths than they did. I, I don't know. It's debatable, but the idea that an armed citizenry deters tyranny, I, I don't think is a joke. I think it's one of those things that's so obvious that it's become a cliche and it's very easy to make fun of cliches. Fair enough. I I, I hear you. But at the end of the day, the, the, the underlying assumption is that the state is not going to use its whole might. Then there is a fight. That That is the underlying assumption there. So as long as we're aware of the underlying assumption of the state not using its might, sure. um, uh, we're in agreement. So, so, so before we wrap up, uh, any new projects coming up that you'd like to tell any, uh, everybody about? Sure. Well, I write uh, pretty prolifically. I mean, my goal as a writer is to do basically what the rapper DMX did, which is kind of get in the studio every day and churn out projects. I mean, it's your job. By the way, in terms of this is just a random thought, but in terms of why creatives fail, it's generally sort of not treating it like a job, like spending a lot of time sitting around, smoking weed, playing video games. If your job is writing, podcasting, which we talked about before this show, something like that, I mean, you need to be in the office or in the studio for six, seven, eight hours a day, lining up guests, churning out articles. So, I mean, I have, I have a couple of things coming up. And I mean, some of them just academic journal pieces, Quillette pieces, that kind of thing. Nothing wrong with those. But um, I do have a new book coming out, which will be tentatively titled something like 12 Lies Your Liberal Teacher Told You. But we're, uh, we're coming up on the 40th anniversary of the Lies My Teacher Told Me series of books where... There was actually at the time a fairly effective critique, if you're looking at like early 80s USA, of sort of the jingo model in education, like when the white man got to this country, there's nothing but bears and barbarians, you know, that I, I saw a little of when I was in school uh, 30 odd years ago. 
But I mean, they make points. There were civilized native nations and so on. And I think now that we've had 40 years of this type of education, I'm, I'm kind of talking about some of the politically incorrect truths there. Like Native Americans didn't spend all day dancing and making love. They were all warriors. And the, the highly civilized, you know, pyramid building, starting to use metal native cultures were on the verge of taking over most of the rest. Um, you know, if you look around, the, another one, for example, the 1950s Red Scare wasn't just a right-wing conspiracy. There actually were a lot of communist spies in the USA at the time. Uh, we recently decoded the quote-unquote Venona cables involving the USA and Russia. And in fact, the two countries had deeply infiltrated one another, and many members of our leadership cadre were quote-unquote Reds, were communists. So, I mean, just uh, sort of a more sent-right take on reality, how common was slavery in human history. Hopefully, reasonably entertaining is written for kind of the upper-end lay audience, like most of the popular press books I write. But I'm working on that right now, and I plan to have at least, I'm also working on a book on policing with the police chief, Maury Richards. So I hope to have a couple books out within the next six to seven months, let's say. That's awesome. I look forward to them coming out. I'll read them and we'll chat uh, chat on the podcast about both the books. I, I, I enjoy reading your articles. I read them regularly. And Good obviously, here. I've read your books. So... All right, so we'll wrap today's discussion up. As always, Dr. Riley, it's a pleasure talking to you. I I'll leave it to the wisdom of my listeners and viewers uh, to decide what American gun laws are all about. But, uh, but uh, as always, you know, I, I get a fresh perspective from you and I get to learn a lot of things. So thanks a lot for coming. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Have a good one. All right, guys, we'll wrap today's discussion up. If you go to the description of the podcast, you'll find the links to the studies that I've shared. You'll also find a link to Wilfred Riley's Twitter handle. You will also find a link to buy his books. You can go read him, uh, read his books. You can follow his Twitter handle. You can also uh, read the studies if you want to. I'll leave the links to the Rand, uh, Rand Corp study and also Michael Schirmer's uh, Substack. And if you like what I'm doing over here, please subscribe to the Charvak Podcast YouTube channel. You can like the video. You can leave a comment over there. You can also become a member on YouTube or Patreon. Or you can buy the Charvak Podcast merch. And you can send your donations to UPI. I will see you guys next time. Until then, namaste. Take care. Goodbye. Goodbye.